Last week, I had a live discussion with economist and historian Deirdre McCloskey to discuss her new book, Why Liberalism Works. Dr. McCloskey argued that classical liberalism is the only philosophy that sustainably combats both tyranny and poverty. She credits the rise of liberal ideas with starting what she calls the Great Enrichment, which over the past 200 years dramatically increased the living standards and personal liberties of even the poorest among us. Her book makes a timely entrance, as many in America say that liberalism is in decline. It's become a dirty word for many on both sides of the aisle. In our discussion, Dr. McCloskey and I explore why this is the case. Why do so many people fail to recognize the unprecedented benefits that liberalism has brought? And why do they favor alternatives with such checkered histories? It was a great conversation. This was a live event, so it's been edited down a bit for time and clarity. But nevertheless, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, I give you Deirdre McCloskey. Well, well, let's just let's start let's sort of definition definitionally for just okay. for a moment. What distinguishes a liberal from a conservative or a progressive? Because these words have sort of been bandied about so much. Well, yeah. what, what is the difference as you see them? Well, it's I think it's very easy. A, a liberal is someone who believes that that uh, there shouldn't be any masters, no tyrants, not husbands over wives not masters over slaves, not politicians over citizens, no hierarchies. Whereas the other two, in their own charming way, delight in coercion, in masters. On on the left, it's the masterhood of the state over everyone. On the right, it's the masterhood of the state over everyone. (laughs) So, along the conventional left-right spectrum, we're only arguing about how to use the massive power of the state. The idea that there shouldn't be any massive power of the state is just off the table. Whereas we liberals, uh, starting with with Adam Smith and Mary Wollstonecraft and Tom Paine and Thoreau and Mill and blah, 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 Milton Friedman, we all think that the state should be um, small, competent, but small. So we're off of the scale. We're we're not on the left-right scale. But I mean, I thought that what uh, American conservatives were doing, at least, was protecting and preserving the liberalism of Adam Smith. Well, and I'm not more, sure it's doing more that anymore. Exactly at, at 1789 Massachusetts Avenue, as George Will has argued, these the, these American conservatives, as against the reactionaries of Europe, uh, the the Carl Schmitts and so forth, they're protecting the Constitution, the separation of powers, and and so forth. And and I'm fine with that. I, I asked. George once said, aren't you really a, a liberal? He said, yeah, yeah, I am. I have to admit it. I'm not a conservative. I'm a liberal. Which is quite a saying for someone who also just wrote a book called Conservative. So it's I know. A rather a long very, summation of his lifetime of it's work. It's a very good book. I highly Excellent. recommend it, uh, along with mine. Um, and uh, Not in that particular order? Well, mine make an excellent gift for your Christmas shopping. Uh, uh, by Timely. the bulk, I mean, your, your mom will be delighted to get a copy of my book, whereas George's is a little thick. 
but it's a good book. Uh, you, you call your uh, sort of your brand of liberalism humane liberalism, I think 2.0. So what, how does this different or how does this build upon well, previous versions and what? I was just yesterday, and I'm gonna go again this noon over at, at Cato. And at Cato, there's some of them, some of the Catoites, are what you might call liberals 1.0. At least that's how they think of themselves. Here's, here's how to express it. The late first century BCE Jewish sage, Hillel of Babylon, expressed the golden rule this way. Do not do unto others as you would not want to have done to yourself. Shortly thereafter, in the early first century CE, another Jewish sage you may have heard of said, do unto others as you'd have done unto yourself. And the first is kind of liberalism 1.0. If you add the second, as I think you should, you get a rounded male and female, if you'll allow me that distinction, way of looking at the world. The first, the first, the Hillel way is, don't tread on me, I'm free, go away, right. leave me alone. You're right, so leave me alone. Don't You're me. not my boss, as the teenagers say. Um, and the, the, and the second is, don't pass by on the other side. Be a good Samaritan. Be nice. And the one you can think of as kind of boyish, and the other is kind of girlish. The one, the first, guards against a, a stupid, often ignorant, um, busybody interfering by the tyrants. And the second acknowledges what I think we should all acknowledge. I think everyone here should acknowledge it that we owe something to the poor. We owe something to the wretched of the earth, namely allowing them to have a job, allowing them to advance in life. And that's a liberal idea. And it was very new in the 18th century, both of those, because the earlier agricultural societies were hierarchical. Everyone had a master, from the king down to the family dog. That's how people thought things had to be. And alas, a lot of people still think so. Lots of conservatives want a society of hierarchy. Now those tend to be the other conservatives. As, as, uh, as George says, they're, they're kind of European conservatives, not American. So I think you need, I think you need both. Um, uh, in, your, in your previous books, I, we mentioned this as we were talking earlier. It's in a way, it seems to me almost like a, you're doing a running dialogue with uh, folks on the left, um, uh, other academics and scholars. We are trying to sort of explain to them that uh, uh, you know, with with, great, with sort of great affection, uh, here's why you're wrong. I'm very humble. You're very humble about it, but here's why. You, please, please, I beseech you. I Consider the possibility that you may be wrong. Might be mistaken. Uh, so, who, so is is this book still meant for them alone? But it seems because it seems like now you need to make the argument to folks on the left, but you also need to make this argument to the folks on the right. So, I, are you doing that? And so why so. do you have to do that? I think so. I'm kind of panicked, as many of us are. Not panic wouldn't be the word, but very worried about 
populism of the left and the right worldwide. You know, this let's try socialism, <laughs> which young people, some young people in the, of, of goodwill in the United States keep saying, every time I hear that, it, uh, it hurts as though it hasn't been tried in the Soviet Union in 1917 <laughs> or in Venezuela in 1999. But, um, but there, as you're suggesting, there's also a, a, a populism of the right I was in Hungary a couple of weeks before the last election, which Orban, surprise, surprise, won. And uh, the anti-Semitism and the crazy anti-immigrant uh, uh, feeling was very thick on the ground, shockingly thick. But bear in mind, I think you, you, you understand this, Jim, that for a century and a half, liberalism has been under attack. For two centuries, it was under attack by conservatives. Early 19th century, Thomas Carlyle, a friend of John Stuart Mill's, didn't approve, didn't agree with John Stuart Mill at all, and was in favor of the hierarchy, even of slavery. But for 150 years, it's been under attack from the left. In the 1870s, and especially 80s, in Britain, the new liberalism started to redefine the word to mean violating Hillel of Babylon. No, no, in order to make you better off, we got to interfere with you. Don't you understand that? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help you. There's a great book to be written explaining why that happened. I've offered some more or less casual arguments in this book, but I, I don't know why it happened. But ever since then, you get more and more to the point where liberalism starts to mean what it means in the United States, which is a kind of soft socialism. Um, and then, even more insanely, what it means in Latin America is an authoritarian government, a government that uses the army to oppress the population. That's called liberalism in some periods in, in, in Brazil and, and Chile and so forth. So it's Though, all, though I'm worried by populism, I think if uh, individual one uh, doesn't get reelected, um, I think world populism will start to decline. But the longer, steadier doubt that free people can take care of themselves and should, though having an obligation to the poor of the world, That'll still be there, even though populism declines. I wonder why you, why you seem so confident that sort of the populist moment, at least on the right, is sort of a, a blip uh, that well, will sort well, of blip away. Because it's happened before. It's blipped before. I mean, obviously, the most extreme example was the 1920s and 30s, where in uh, one country after another it turned to fascism or communism. And those were... Those were populist, in the sense that you promise the world to, to the people. And you say, well, of course, you understand <laughs> the, the party has a leading role. And for, for the time being, we're, <laughs> we're going to have this um, dictatorship of the proletariat. And yeah, that, that'll, that, that'll go away eventually. George Orwell, that clear-thinking guy, has O'Brien, the, the party official, in 1984, say to the hero, if you want a picture of the future, think 
of a boot stamping a human face forever. So it's happened before, and then it, it faded. So I think it'll fade again. Now, maybe liberalism will fade again, because we were liberal. We, I mean, I don't know. The clerisy was liberal in 1840, and then we started to slip away. I wonder who will fight. Will it just be that the other ways, we'll, we'll experiment with other ways, and they'll fail, and people will come back to liberalism? But I'm wondering right now, who will actively fight right you now? You and I will, Jim. I hope there's more. Yeah, well, it doesn't, see, they particularly on the you would accept, the, that sort of the, the sort of broad center that accepted this, and there was a broad center, um, left and right, but Democrats. That, it's, that seems to be shrinking. But that's the key. The key is ideological, as Lincoln famously said. Without public opinion, policy doesn't accomplish anything. With public opinion, it can accomplish anything. And you know, he knew. <laughs> Because his, his task, his self-assigned task, was to arouse the, uh, the populace to favor the continuation of the Union and then the abolition of slavery. Um, it's, it's, it's ideology. So where does the rubber meet the road? It meets it in what you all do, partly. You do pamphlets and policy statements, and you write books, and you try to agitate the uh, intellectual class to understand this. But of course, a little bit further along on the road, it's movies, it's country music, it's rock music, it's obviously opinion in the newspaper, it's opinion expressed on uh, on the TV. That's where it is. You get people this morning, Governor Kasich was on Morning Joe, and Kasich is a liberal. He's my guy. But there are people, fewer, in the Democratic Party who are my kind of guy. So we, that's, it's, it's, as you said, it's, it's ideology, it's thought, it's conviction. And this, this goes back to Hume and Smith uh, about moral sentiments. What Hume said is that morality, ethics, the firmament, the, 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 the f foundation of our, of our lives is not a product of logic. It's a product of feeling. We see a child about to fall down a well. Everyone in this room would rush over and stop the child from falling down the well. Donald Trump wouldn't, by the way, but that, that's a separate matter. If you, if you have the right kind of, sort of equipment in your brain, you'll do that. And those moral sentiments can be changed with, our, with not arguments so much. You know, all, all I can do is argue. I'm, I'm an economist and a historian. And, and I got all these arguments and examples and blah, blah, blah. And it's supposed to convince people. But what matters, I'm trivial by comparison with uh, documentary makers. If Ken Burns would do a documentary about liberalism instead of celebrating uh, uh, um, statism, as he tends to do, 
that would have much more influence than anything you and I could do. Well, I, I guess uh, Sorry, yeah, I think that would be very speech. important. But I guess I'm wondering, you know, and I wonder this all the time, like, why isn't the chart enough? Why isn't the chart that shows what we lived, how we lived in 1800 versus today? That seems to be a very powerful illustration that it would take an awfully powerful coward to art and to say, whatever so. caught that, we need to stop doing that and do something else. Exactly. The, the, the great Hans Rosling, who you must all look into, a professor of public health in Sweden, does these <laughs> exquisite um, speeches, and, and uh, he's got a famous... Uh, one of his early ones, doing exactly that, saying, look, look at the bubbles going up, and my word, look at how much richer the economy is becoming, the world economy is becoming. And you must go, go look at those. Because here's a man who doesn't come from a particular ideological perspective, as far as I can see. He's a Swede, so I guess he's kind of instinctively a statist, but he, but he, didn't, he didn't indicate that. He seemed to think that that freedom was where it was at. And in any case, it's had this immense effect. So in all my works, and all the works of Deirdre, I keep saying to people, hoping that it'll get through, do you know how much richer you are than your ancestors? I look around in this room and I don't see any you know, descendants of the crowned heads of Europe or Asia or Africa. Deirdre, we have some, I have some very interesting family lore on my side. I'd okay, like, I'd like okay. to inform you about Maybe you're a Habsburg, <laughs> but most of the people here are not. And the and we your your people were unspeakably poor. How much? A factor of thirty. Three about three thousand percent improvement. People say, actually, I I gave a talk at the. Department of Cultural Anthropology at Cambridge, a very famous group of anthropologists last year. And one of the anthropologists, who I won't name, a man who's done excellent work, stood up and said, well, you know, I agree with your factor of 30 business. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. But, you know, 3,000% is much too big. Think about it. And... And I, I didn't say, go back to your fourth grade arithmetic, dear, and get that straight. But anyway, 3,000%. Redistribution, expropriating the expropriators, has nothing to do. <laughs> it's just not going to come even close. Well, I, be I believe the New York Times is running a series, and part of which is making the case that a big factor was indeed expropriation. Um, slavery is, goes a long way to explaining that great enrichment. I wrote an article in, in Reason last year, which you can consult on my website, attacking that idea. I called the, these people the King Cotton School of History, and they're, they're unscholarly and they're wrong, and they don't understand economics. Now, inscribed in the wall of the Lincoln Memorial is the great and generous sentiment of the second inaugural, in which Lincoln says, if the wealth piled up by 200, and I forget how it was, 240 years of enslavement, uh, if, if this war must go on, 
uh, until all that wealth is taken back, the judgments of the Lord are just indeed. Shows how carefully Lincoln the boy had read the Bible because that's a it's from Psalms. It's not a particularly famous passage, but it's wrong as economics. It makes no sense at all. The United States is not rich because of slavery. If it were so, then other slave societies would be rich, right? <laughs> African societies, African empires, which were for the most part, I think probably all of them, certainly true of the Mediterranean, were slave societies. They'd, they'd, have, they'd have had a great enrichment. So there's something deeply screwy I can go into other arguments against this about this idea that exploitation is what made us rich. That's the argument of the left. I'm completely unsurprised that, that the parish newspaper of the herd of independent minds called the New York Times is, um, would have a series saying such well, the, the, um, and I have re and, and Without any contrary voices. For sure. That's lovely. That's a great newspaper. I... I God almighty. I like the Washington Post. It's something like a real newspaper. I was very proud when I got a column in the, in the New York Post because that's a real newspaper. And the Times, we're the newspaper of record. We're, we're oh, Jesus. Ah. The, um, the, again, the, uh, the chart, the, uh, the chart you know, showing the line going straight for forever yeah, and, then, and then going up like this. So the, I think folks on the left, their critique would be, well, but inequality. The inequality that it's causing uh, is, is just too severe. And then that the folks on the right, I think this is part of the argument on the right among the populaces, great, uh, it's causing more wealth broadly, it's giving us iPhones, but it's too disruptive. Yeah. It's too disruptive for our lives, yeah. for our families. This sort of go-go dynamism yeah. that, oh, you liberals like, it's, it's bad for people, families, and communities. Both, so, of, these, both of these views um, don't take account of the fact that you help the poor people if you have a dynamic economy, that the way poor people got better off is a growing economy. The families in Mississippi that James Agee and um, what's his name, the photographer, objectified in their famous and wonderfully eloquent book of 1941, I think, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. These were unspeakably poor sharecroppers. Their grandchildren, a journalist, very interestingly, went back to that community and talked to the older people who had been the naked children in those photographs. And they much resented this objectification of them, using them for political purposes. And their grandchildren went to college. That's the point. You're, how many generations back does everyone in this room have to go before your, your, your people are unspeakably poor? my case, it's about three generations. That's how to get people better off. And the, the argument that a free economy is disruptive is true enough. The terrifying phrase of, uh, 
of, uh, I always forget his name. It's not Schmoller. Who's the guy? Schumpeter. No, it's not Schumpeter. It's, I thought it, you were going with creative destruction. It, I am, but it's not Schumpeter's phrase. He stole it from yeah, someone yeah. else. Who? Zombart. Yeah, yeah. I, for some reason, I can't keep Zombart in mind. Well done. But, but he, uh, he's the one who had it, uh, who he invented it about 1915, creative destruction. Well, it's creative, and it really is. And it's creation, not capital accumulation, that made us uh, rich. It's new ideas that made us rich, not piling up brick on brick or BA on BA. That's necessary, but so is the arrow of time and the existence of water, liquid at normal temperatures, and all kinds of things, the existence of a labor force. But the spring is ideas, and the ideas, I claim, were allowed, permitted, by the coming of liberalism in the 18th century, and a completely new idea. In 1685, Richard Rumbolt, when the 1640s in England had been a, was still, a, a leveler, as, as Charles I called them, you know, equalizing people against this hierarchy that uh, traditional societies have, was captured and convicted, I forget the, that there wasn't any justice in it, by James II's judges and was hanged. And under English law, you were allowed before you got hanged or your head chopped off to make a speech from the scaffold. So he did. And in the speech he said, I think there is no man born of God above another, for no man comes into the world with a saddle on his back nor any booted and spurred to ride him. To which the crowd gathered to watch the hanging, and it was kind of the reality TV of the day, probably laughed. Because in 1685, it was a nutty idea. But by 1785, a lot of people were saying it. By 1885, tyrants were adopting it, and certainly now. And this was completely new, and it made for enrichment. It, it inspired people. It gave them permission. E equality of opportunity is a bad phrase. It doesn't work because it, it suggests we've got to move resources around. Although, by the way, I'm in favor of financing of, of, uh, 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 of education, elementary education. I, I, I think I should be taxed to pay for it not provided by the state, but still. Um, this idea is so unusual in human history, and it inspirited people. It gave them permission to venture. Have not just Edison, have a go, not just Edison or Rockefeller or something, but ordinary people starting a hairdressing salon. You're permitted to. Now, if you want to braid hair for a living, in many states, you have to get a license. We're going back to the economy of permission. My, my friend uh, Hazlitt has, has a wonderful book on um, uh, the FCC and all that stuff, where, he, where his way of saying it is, for a long time, under, under the regulation of the airwaves, was done on the principle of mother may I. First you ask your mom, may you do it? 
Whereas a much better principle is do it and then apologize if it, if it doesn't work out. I, actually, I believe there, I just read a story that in San Francisco, they're, I think they're going to create a new department of Mother May I for emerging technologies, that if you want to try something new in the city, for instance, scooters, you need to run it by this uh, agency. And, Absolutely. Know. And that's what France had in the 18th century. So we're, as I said, we're moving back to this mercantilism, to this uh, lack of permission society. In France in the 18th century, they had such... This was, of course, the French, they do it all, it's highly centralized. In Paris, there was a committee. If you want, now this, this is almost incredible, but true. If you wanted to open a new, I don't know, grist mill, you had to get permission from Paris. Whereas in England, it was go do something, and then there's tort law if you screw it up and hurt people. and Otherwise, no, go ahead, do it. So do you have no sympathy then for the, the, the anti-disruption disruption argument, I, which is filled with a, a lot of nostalgia for sort of a pre-globalization era. You hear a lot about, well, back in the 1950s, you had, yeah. you had you know, more stable families, you had yeah, yeah, you know, that, mom, mom at home, that was fine. Uh, you had a job for 50 years, and all of that. That was fine for those who had them, but there was a whole part of the economy, a very large part, that didn't have it. Um, and now those non-havers <laughs> have it. Um, now, I, here, of course I have sympathy. If somehow they're a machine, an AI machine is developed to write books about liberalism and economic history, and I'm substituted for by this machine, I'll be, I'll be unhappy. But being a liberal, I will gracefully withdraw Henry David Thoreau was in business. It's not widely known. He took over his father's pencil business, Thoreau and Sons. He improved the machinery. He was a very practical guy. And he sold for about 10 years the best pencils in the United States. Then a French company leapt over Thoreau and Son. And Thoreau, being a liberal, gracefully withdrew, and Thoreau and Son went on to supply graphite to the printing trade. That's what they did. This, this is how it goes. Look, here's the problem. You say, oh, but, but God, we've got to help those people in Youngstown, Ohio, or the poor um, ex-professor who's out of a job because of AI takes over his job, her job. That, <laughs> The problem is that every year in the United States, now hear this, 14% of the jobs disappear forever. The company moves from Washington to Tennessee. The company gets competed out of existence. The company decides it doesn't need as many people as it thought before. A new industry arises that is, is better than that industry. In the year 2000, 130,000 people were employed in, wait for it, video stores. Where have those people gone? Are they standing on the streets? No, they're not. They went into other occupations. And now we have much better access to films than we did before. Then we had to go down to the video store and look through all the stuff. So. 
so if, if you're going to have a progressive economy, you've got to have disruption. And it's not just labor that's disrupted, it's capital. This, this building is a good example. It was, you, you told me, Jim, when, you, when the uh, AEI t took it over, it was in terrible shape. It had been used for the Morgans, was it? Uh, Mellon. For the Mellons, it starts with M. And the Mellons passed into, got eaten or something. And, and it became, it's being reused, and you had to do an investment in it. And this happens all the time in a dynamic economy. So, so you can't, if it's 14%, and you say, oh, the poor coal miners of West Virginia, we've got to give them money to stay in West Virginia, or we've got to pay, the, um, pay for the uh, capital loss on the houses of people in Youngstown, Ohio. You can't do it. It's 14%. Look, the most, the most famous example, an obvious one of this, is agriculture. In 1800, 80% of the American population was on farms. Now it's 1%. Those jobs disappeared forever, and damn right, good. Well, why, why do we seem all of a sudden to be less, ex, uh, less accepting of that kind of... Because I've heard people, and this is not people on the left or yeah, you know, yeah. Bernie Sanders, but I've heard people on the right question, you know, why, you know, for, you know, certainly why should we allow a company to send jobs overseas, but why yeah, should yeah. a company just be allowed to pick up and leave a town for no place in the United States without talking to the community? It's a change in uh, idea. Why should they just be able to lay yeah. people off? It's, it's a question a, the very fundamental that, that, that a company needs to do these things to stay in business. What, you know, what's the community getting? It's a, it's a striking change in ideology. You see it also in NIMBY, not in my backyard. Whereas 100 years ago, when a mine ran out, gold mine or copper or something, people left and they said, well, that's too bad. And they, and they, they that is the workers, accepted it ideologically. And here's what we need to do. We, we need to get people to understand. They have a choice. You could have everyone do the same job tomorrow that they're doing today. Then everyone would have a job forever. Now, this is a slight problem because people die. But, I don't know, somehow we'll work that out. We'll have casts. So your, your, your mom's job becomes yours. This will be a completely stagnant society which, whose income is not increasing, and everyone will be safe. But it, it, then you ask yourself, which society do you want to live in? It's like the philosophical point that, um, that Rawls and, and Nozick and lots of other philosophers back to um, Hobbes made, which is that behind a veil of ignorance, which society would you choose? The society in which enterprises made decisions and people had to move to North Dakota to have a job in the oil industry temporarily, or where they stay in Youngstown, Ohio forever. I, I find it very irritating that people think that places need subsidies. What's this? Land love? I don't get it. People need subsidies. I'm willing to, to help increase the mobility of the American labor force, which has fallen in the last uh, 40 years. But I'm not willing to think of, 
I don't know, I was just in western Massachusetts. And out of the tourist season, it's a poor Appalachian-type place. And what, 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 are we supposed to think of, of the Berkshires as a place to be subsidized? I think there are people that, that want exactly that. They I feel talk. That we're all so we have this, you know, sort of web of responsibility and obligation not to our communities, to our families. And what you're suggesting is, basically, it's just you, and you can feel free to pick up and move. But moving is hard, and it's too hard know, for know, too it, many people. I know it's too hard. And then what I want to do is switch back <laughs> to an ideology of of, um, of freedom. Because look, being free is scary. You people are free to resign from AEI. I don't recommend you do it, but no. you could tomorrow. And walk away and go somewhere else. But it's nerve-wracking. It's, it's disturbing. But a free society, which you people participate in, is one in which you can take this job and shove it. A slave is a person who can't take this job and shove it. And a kind of voluntary slave, as it were, is someone who is tempted by subsidies by the state to stay in Youngstown. The French used to have a shipbuilding and repairing industry. Then it moved to Finland and Japan and various other, India, various other places. So, being the French, they subsidized the shipmakers in northwestern France, to stay there and to play bull and to drink aperitifs. This is not the kind of society a free person wants to be in. But the problem is that not everyone wants to be free. Take a look at the Russian people. They want a czar. And they keep getting czars. And that's, as you were saying earlier, that's the kind of motive behind uh, populism. The man on the white horse, ah, oh, the father of the nation. Uh, I, th I, I think a lot of people understood the Republican Party as sort of the economic freedom, creative destruction, dynamism party. But now oh. a bigger chunk of Republican voters seem to be those people in Youngstown. And the message seems to be changed from, uh, yeah, here, here's, your, here's your freedom, uh, make a better lives for yourself, mm -hmm. to... We're going we're gonna to help you stay there, and we're going to save those jobs, and we're going to save those factories. Yeah, and if that factory owner wants to leave, we're gonna, the president will tweet something to try to intimidate them into not leaving or not yep, leaving those exactly. jobs. Well, so, if that, so, who's, so where's the creative destruction party? Where's the dynamism party? Where's the economic freedom party? Off to the, it's gone. Because the Democrats, more or less uniformly, Joe Biden might, of, of the current candidates, might be the, the best on this score, but I don't know. I'm not sure. But, but when they're asked, they all say, oh, yeah, the state should come in and help them. In fact, uh, who is it? The, the, um, the senior senator, I think he is from Ohio. What's his name? Uh, uh, he's a protectionist. He's a trade union protectionist. Let's have steel tariffs. Yeah, you bet. So <laughs> there's no voice for free trade. Well, let's talk about this to the left for a second. I don't have these numbers exactly right, but you'll hear these numbers saying that you know, 30 years ago, the top 1% had 20% of the wealth. Now it's, they have, I don't know, 40% of the wealth. And that, on its face, is sort of intrinsically an immoral situation. If that is what your innovation, market-driven economic freedom is giving us, well, that, how is that sustainable? It's, it's completely wrong. wrong. 
the accounting is wrong. I'm fond of saying to my colleagues, professors of accounting, that economics depends on your field. If you don't get the accounting right, you're going to get the economics wrong. So Piketty, I did a 50-page review of his book. It's available on my website. And one of the technical points, and, and I tried to be fair because I, you know, when I came to the book, I thought, well, you know, it seems to be a serious book, and he is a serious man. I don't think he's a bad man. <laughs> he ignores human capital. He ignores social capital. He ignores public capital. So wealth, he thinks, is just factories and farms. It's physical capital. And then the claims to physical capital uh, in stocks and bonds. That's it. This is loco. This is insane. Human capital, as everyone in this room shows, is an increasing part of what produces income in the United States and other advanced uh, economies. So it's nuts, and it's owned by the workers. I, I said, you, you can take this job and shove it. Walk away with your, with your human capital between your ears. I mean, and it's not a minor matter. This is a big deal. Something on the order of, I don't know, half of income comes from human capital, probably more. I haven't done the calculations. But in 1848, your ancestors and mine had their backs and their hands. That's all they had. That's the skill they had. Many of them couldn't read. My Irish ancestors probably, certainly in the 18th century, couldn't read. And the bosses had the farms and the capital, the, the factories and the machines. And that's the classic Marxist and indeed economic story of the world. The, 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 the classical economists, that was their model. It's wrong. <laughs> I mean, he didn't even include physical capital in roads. And uh, the depressingly large amount of government buildings in Washington. So he's, he missed most of the capital. So the inequality talk is rubbish. And that's not the only problem it has. So let me ask you, but I think, some, again, some people on the face will say, boy, you know, Jeff Bezos is worth $100 billion, down from $160 billion pre-divorce. Good for him. Uh, Bill Gates close to $100 billion. It's just too much. It's just on its face, too much wealth. It, it can influence the political system. It's bad for democracy. Would he not have built Amazon if he could only become a $5 billionaire or a $10 billionaire? Yeah, but that's the, that's the incentive argument. That's what, what the left thinks we liberals believe that the reason that Jeff Bezos is justified in having uh, ownership rights of $100 billion is that this is an incentive. Like, uh, you know, you pay people more to work harder. And that's not it. That has bugger all to do with it. The economics here is that it's a signal. It's a signal that, boy, this was a good idea, let's do more of it. And indeed, because he's made 
such a success out of Amazon. I mean, I use Amazon all the time. It's a reinvention of Sears Roebuck of, of 100 years ago, the mail order revolution in American retailing. It's signal, and, and sure enough, company after company is reproducing Amazon in its own company. Is it, is so it also now you can order on the internet from any company, and it comes. This, I actually haven't got it on right now, but my, I've gotten very excited about a particular brand of uh, uh, blouse. I have about eight of them by now. I keep ordering them online, and I'm not ordering through Amazon. I'm ordering through, I don't know, uh, Macy's or something. So it's that signaling function that profit is all about. It's not about incentives. And in any case, if Jeff Bezos, Bezos gets money because he's done something that we like, what's the complaint? It goes back to um, the Wilt Chamberlain example in, uh, in, in Anarchy State and Utopia. If we get pleasure out of watching Wilt Chamberlain do jump shots, basketball jump shots, ooh, hey, that's fun to watch, and we pay for it, we pay a dollar or ten dollars or a hundred dollars to watch him do it. What's the problem? Wilt gets rich. I don't care. I'm not envious of him getting rich. I mean, okay, as long as I'm doing okay, and I am. So what doesn't the the young? I mean, look. What, what don't the young socialists get? What doesn't they think the democratic socialists? Bernie what Sanders, think. Alexander Cortez. They, they think it's easy to run the economy because they have no understanding of how a business actually works. Small business, large business, if any of you have been in a small business, large business, you know that it's bloody hard. And you're making complicated decisions all day long. But you know, that's true if you're a carpenter. You're making complicated decisions. That's the human capital part. The skill of a carpenter is human capital, which Piketty and the other complainers about inequality just ignore. But okay, they think the economy is easy. Here, here's an, a, a st startling number. The Food and Drug Administration regulates, which is to say governs in detail, 20% of the American economy. Food and drugs. That's a pretty big number. And it's ridiculous to think that a bunch of uh, obviously very nice people, I see, see them walking around in, in D.C., uh, they're very nice. They're college graduates. They have nice suits on. I'm sure they're very nice people. But to think that they can decide what cancer treatment I get is insane. They think the economy is easy so that Elizabeth Warren can just take it over and run it with ease from Washington. She has a lot of plans. She has a lot of plans, and they're all wonderful, and she's going to do it, and don't worry. It's actually rather similar to Trump. This is, again, the left and the so-called right getting together. They don't understand the invisible hand at all. They think like lawyers. It's very much to the point that most of the candidates uh, in the Democratic Party are lawyers. Because lawyers, some of you are lawyers, think that the way to solve a problem is to make a law. That's pretty easy. You want to increase the welfare of poor people? 
raise the minimum wage. What could be simpler? Uh, I don't know why they don't raise it to $500 an hour, but anyway, that seems simple. And that's the impulse, that's the legal impulses against the, the, the Hayekian economist's um, knowledge. It's not really a belief, it's not just some crazy ideology we have which doesn't make any sense. The, the belief, because we see it every day, that the invisible hand works. When you buy a loaf of bread, miraculously it shows up at the store. I mean, this is astounding. You didn't have to order it six months in advance. There's a nice joke from the old Soviet Union. The guy wants to buy, what were their terrible cars? Some, some, yeah, some horrible car. Yeah, a lot of, so he has to order it 10 years in advance. And, the, and he's quite startled that he has to order it 10 years in advance because the order has to come through and then they, they make it and then they give it to him. And, <laughs> and, the, and the salesman says, well, we have to specify the day you're going to get the car. And the guy says, well, it's 10 years in advance. Why is that? No, no. Okay, okay, I'll specify. June 3rd, 10 years in the future. And then the salesman says, in the morning or the afternoon? <laughs> And the guy says, what are you talking about? He says, look, we have the plumber scheduled to come in the morning. <laughs> Get it? See, see the plumber? So, and that's the way people think the economy has to work, that it's all planned from on high. And that's not how it works. Supply and demand is, a, is, is miraculously good. And people like Piketty who's supposed to be an economist, doesn't understand this but he's, at all. But he's also, they're also making a moral argument, too. They're not just making, they're not just making. Not making I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, a lot of, and this is what I've been perhaps focusing on to a fault, is sort of the idea that this is the way for an, for an economy to deliver the goods. And, and, and they're also making the, the, the case that it's just, they're making a moral argument as much as. Yeah, they're making a moral argument, and I'm making a moral argument. I'm not one of these economists who think, oh, I'm a positive scientist. I get so tired of this crap. I've been, I've been fighting it for 40 years. Uh, positive economics. Oh, we don't do politics or ethics in economics. What a load of codswallop. Of course we do. We're a social science even if we were a physical science, we would be doing, um, uh, we, we've learned from science studies that that's how science works, ethically. It's an ethical question. Okay, and I'm making an ethical point. I'm saying, I want you to be free. This is how to be free. You've got to accept disturbance. You've got to be flexible. Look, here, here's the analogy I often make, and I hope this is effective with my friends on the left or right, would you like rock music to be run by the government? Would you like science to be run? Well, it is to some degree. But would you like painting to have a government agency running it? Well, in the Soviet Union, they did. Would you like literature to be determined by the government? Well, obviously not. And somehow, we get novels that we like or don't like. That's how it's done. 
But, but why not in the rest of the economy? But I think, um, I think uh, democratic socialists would argue that... Which, by the way, is a contradiction right, in terms. That, they, that, they, that, they're, that that kind of economy, that kind of society, creates a better kind of person. That, that, that a capitalist, even though I know you aren't fond of that word, that that society creates a, a, selfish, selfish, a selfish person, and which is sort of the point of your original book about the and, virtues. And the evidence is completely against that. The famous phrase in the Soviet Union, communism, was the nature of man under socialism. That under socialism, under the dictatorship of the proletariat, and then ultimately the ideal uh, communist society, human nature would change. And that people would be generous, and they'd play, play a cello in the morning, and then go work a little bit for other people, and then they'd, they'd play, go back to the cello in the evening. And it's nonsense. That's not how the Soviet Union worked. The Soviet Union wrecked Russian ethics. Ask anyone old enough to have experienced it. You became selfish. You became a, 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 a con man and a con woman in the Soviet Union. You were constantly looking for advantage, however small. Whereas a kind of generous liberal attitude, I'm OK, you're OK, let's go with it, that's what's encouraged by a free society. I think in my first book of my, my, my trilogy made this case. It's called The Bourgeois Virtues. And it said that the nature of man under what I call innovism or liberalism, not capitalism, which is a stupid word, um, is it improves people. This is what lots of people said in the 18th century. They expected um, du commerce, sweet commerce, to soften people by their interaction. And that's what happens in your own life. You learn to be polite to the customer. You enter an American store, how can I help you? Whereas you enter, I've been to Cuba, you enter a government-run store which has nothing in it, and the person insults you. Who are you? So it's simply not true that the good society is a collectivist one. Here's why people think that. We all come from families. Families are socialist enterprises, very appropriately, from each according to her ability, to each according to his need. And that's how families should work and do work. Mom in the old kind of family of the 1950s ideal alleged family, was the central planner. And anyway, the decisions of the bosses, namely the parents, were final. And it wasn't a vote. You might have a family council in order to uh, fool the children. But, but that, that, that's where we come from. And we love it, quite appropriately. Sweet family. And then we say, oh, gee, why can't we run a society of 330 million people the same way. And that's what Bernie thinks. Bernie and I and Jeremy Corbin are, are the same age. And in 1960, we had the same opinions. Um, 
overthrow capitalism, Oberakad. I was a not a communist, but I was a I was a sort of Joan Baez socialist. I sang the labor songs and so forth, and uh, anti-Vietnam and all that. And Bernie and Jeremy haven't changed their mind in the face of the evidence at all in 60 years. I don't know why they can't see that collectivism, the family style uh, society is not a good one. In fact, again, it's, it's, it's the left and the so-called right. It's Donald Trump wants to run a family. It's the only experience the guy's ever had is with a family business. He wasn't even corporate. So he never had any uh, board or stockholders to please. That's why he's such a tyrant. So he thinks that it's going to be a family, and he's the, he's the boss. Do you think China still makes your case? Um, Absolutely. They're the case where, where even just a bit of a nudge toward more openness and economic freedom per, you know, creates tremendous results, but yet it's a country that, still, that seems to have a reverse course toward a more totalitarian well, society. That's, that's she, and yeah. she is a terrible man. And um, my friend Steve Chung, who's a great Chinese economist, he agrees with me. But okay, the there's a claim that you'll hear that they'll talk about Singapore, if they're very sophisticated. They'll talk about China, and they'll say, well, you see, tyranny works. So there's a Chinese model of tyranny, and that makes us rich. Because, you know, the economy is easy, so we just need someone in charge to, to push it around. Where to, where to build the bullet trains. Where to build, build the bullet trains. And the bullet trains, which I've been on, are insane. China is a very poor country still, although it's done very well. I, I, I admire the Chinese enterprise. But it's still poor. And it's got more high-speed rail than all the rest of the world combined. And that's because the Communist Party grandees wanted it. It's glorious. <laughs> we, this stupid um, Belt and Road initiative to build a railway across Central Asia. <laughs> one container ship holds 100 car 100 trains. So how many trains do you have to have going across Central Asia to match one container ship at uh, Shanghai? This, this is crazy. The part of the Chinese economy that works is the part where they started to say after 1978, okay, 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 you can open a, a grocery store if you want. And the Xi'an, the so-called counties in China, that's where the competition happened. The central planners stopped doing it. And the Xi'an competed with each other for enterprises, for factories. And that's what made the Chinese economy work. Because then business people held the upper hand, so to speak. Because every Xi'an in the country wanted them to come there. And so you got an increase, a growth rate of sometimes 10% per year for 10 years, that, that solves a lot of social problems. So it's the liberal parts, not the industrial policy, central planning, regulation part of the economy that does well for people. 
But yet there are certainly people on the, uh, on, certainly on the left, but also on the right who say, well, boy, I mean, industrial policy kind of does work. Maybe we don't have to, you know, be just like China, but maybe, maybe we should plan a little bit more, whether it's using trade policy yeah, yeah. or subsidies. Well, um, to, to, to maybe a little bit of uh, a capitalism with uh, Chinese characteristics. It's completely crazy because it's the Chinese, it's the, it's the tyranny of the Chinese policies that have made them worse off. And, and you can see this in, in what's happening under Xi, the growth rate's falling because he's trying to make it more and more regulation. I was in central China at kind of an MIT type engineering school and they showed me proudly their software hardware of facial recognition. Said that now we can watch every single person in China all day long. Talk about 1984. I, I tried to be polite. I said, oh, isn't that lovely? Uh, <laughs> so it, it's, the, it's the free parts that work because innovation comes from, from, from individuals. It doesn't come from governments. This character, Ma, Ma, Matsukaru, is a menace. There are many of them around, um, but she's a particularly bad one. Actually, the person who won the Nobel Prize yesterday is, is, is another, another one of these people, Esther Duflo. And these people want to run your life, and they, they think they can do it. And I don't see why they think yeah. they can well, do it. It's my, very my last arrogant. question is that, but again, there will be people who say, well, that's, that's really great for China. But you know what? We ended up creating, we may have a lot of, you know, 500 million people may have left extreme poverty, but we've also, in the process, created a strategic competitor, a, a, a technologically advanced, uh, you know, much stronger military power. And well, that would have been better had we, had, it would have been better had they just stayed well, that's, like they were in 1978. That goes back to Adam Smith. It, the, everything goes back to Adam Smith. He said famously, it would be appalling, he didn't say it quite this way, if he said, look, from a utilitarian point of view, he didn't use the word, the loss of your little finger would be more painful to you, say it got chopped off or something, than the death by earthquake or something of the entire empire of China. But he said, you would not be able to um, stand yourself if you weren't willing to give up your little finger to save the Chinese. You, you would, your sense of justice, not just utility, would be deeply offended if you didn't have the moral uh, rectitude to say, oh yeah, I'm willing to take my little finger indeed, shoot me, if it'll save all the people in China. And anyone here, I'm sure, would have the same feeling. It, this kind of screw you, all I care about is myself, that's not a human way to behave. So to say, oh, well, it would have been better for the United States. You know, in, in, in any case, this, this strategic disadvantage we get because the Chinese are now more prosperous than they were, I don't care. What do I care? They can lean on Tibet, which I find appalling, and they can sort of be bossy in the South China Sea and sort of rattle sabers about Taiwan, but it's the United States that has 800 foreign bases, not China.
China, when it goes abroad, invests. That's what it does. People say, oh, that's terrible. The Chinese are coming. They're taking over the world. We had the same feeling about the Japanese in the 1980s. It turned out they went around buying up assets in the West, especially the United States, and then we paid them back in dollars that had fallen 50% compared to the yen. And they bought up Rockefeller Plaza, and it turned out to be a terrible deal. Golf the Chinese are doing exactly the same thing. I, Let them do it. I, I, I think we'll, we'll uh, wrap this part up. Uh, thank you again, for Professor McCloskey, for coming again. Thank you. Thank you, you